Thanks for downloading our podcast. You can find out more about Tech Tent from our webpage. Go to bbc.com slash programmes slash Tech Tent. Hello and welcome to Tech Tent, your weekly status update on the technology business. I'm Rory Kathleen-Jones and joining me on the show this week from the BBC's tech desk are Zoe Kleinman. Hello. And Dave Lee. Hi, Roy. And my very special guest today is Alex Asaley, co-founder of the wearable tech company Jawbone and ambassador for the Hour of Code, which we'll talk about later. Uh, hi, Alex. Hello. So before we kick off, here's a preview of what's coming up. I realized that everything that happens is, it begins with code. So I thought I wanted to learn how that works. If you have a paintbrush and you only have red and green, you can't make a painting correctly replicate the visible spectrum. Vision without execution is hallucination. But first this week, the latest clash between a Silicon Valley giant and European regulators. This time, it's Google at war with the Spanish authorities over a new tax which would see internet news aggregators paying out for linking to snippets of stories. The search engine giant has responded by closing its Google News service in Spain. Uh, Zoe Kleiman, give us uh, your quick one-minute take on this story before we get the latest from Spain. Well, Rory, I think this is a classic case of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Um, In a rather large nutshell, as you said, Spain introduced this new law and what it was trying to do was clamp down on copyright infringement. And that's all very noble, of course, except it's it's managed to mightily upset Google in the process. And that's because one of the implications of this law is that from January next year, Google will have to pay individual publishers every time a snippet of their material, a headline, a summary, a small picture, ends up on its news service. And the problem is that the news service is a rolling aggregate of exactly those snippets, hundreds and hundreds of them from hundreds of different websites. So it would cost Google a fortune. And Google says, well, we don't make any money from the service. We don't run any app advertising round it. It doesn't bring anything in for us. So we're not going to go down this road. We're just going to switch it off. Is that a victory for copyright, do you think? Well, perhaps. But the service also drives a lot of traffic to websites that might not otherwise get noticed. So while their copyright is going to be intact, they might find nobody's reading their material either. And at the moment, they can't opt out if they decide they'd rather have the audience than the cash. By the way, Rory, I looked you up on Google News a little bit earlier. And I found this rather charming headline. We all thought he was a geek, but how wrong we were, it says. Uh, you can well, have that one for free, Rory. Yeah, yeah, Google's always got it right. Um, yeah, uh, well, thank you very much for that, Zoe. Now, joining us on the line from uh, Murcia, Murcia in Spain is Matthew Bennett. Uh, he's editor of The Spain Re- Report, a site which monitors all the Spanish media news. Uh, Matthew, I gather there have been more developments on this story today. Hi, Rory, they have. That's right. There's um, the, the main lobby behind this uh, new intellectual property law in Spain, the main group that's been pushing for its uh, alteration and for the new tariff on, on, uh, on, on Google and things, uh, has now said that it wants the Spanish government and EU competition authorities to intervene to stop Google News leaving. So, so this lobby group was made up of the, the main Spanish newspapers, famous Spanish newspapers. They wanted it. Now they've changed their mind, have they? That's right. Um, they, they've recognised, they've acknowledged that uh, Google, Google has a uh, Google News and Google have a dominant market position uh, in Europe and in Spain in terms of search and news search. And they said that uh, it, it will in, undoubtedly have a negative impact on citizens and Spanish businesses. Uh, and what about other uh, Spanish sites that might themselves be affected? Have, have they been welcooming this or have they been upset too? Uh, the, the news today or the, the well, decision? Well, the, the general decision. 
Oh, no, they think it's terrible. Uh, I spoke yesterday to the founder of uh, the Spanish version of Dig or, or Reddit, and um, uh, he was up in arms about it too. He's thinking one of the, th the things they're considering doing is taking the company or the project to another country, to London or Dublin. Um, they, they don't know what to do. So it's, it's, it's not worked very well. Uh, Alex Asali, our special guest, briefly, um, this doesn't seem to have worked out well for Spain, does it? No, I think it's a little bit of old world pulling on the, on the ropes of new world not really working out quite how they planned. Now, there's a global push to get young people to understand the importance of coding or computer programming, as we old-fashioned types call it. Uh, this week, something called the Hour of Code has been taking place, the idea being that you spend 60 minutes getting just a flavour of what programming is all about. All sorts of people have done it, including President Obama. We even had a session here at the BBC. I had a go uh, and was helped out by some teenage tutors. It all comes down to code. A series of instructions that are carried out in a particular order which tell a computer what to do. We'll work so now let's hear from Mark Zuckerberg about what we're going to do next. One thing that computers are really good at is repeating commands. So what's your name, As by the way? Person. My name is Quinsley. Uh, what do I do now? I'm on to puzzle six. So what have I got to do? Well, first you need to turn right so and then I, move forward. Uh, oh, yeah, I need to turn right... Then move forward. Then to oh, connect yeah. the box. I've got to connect it properly. I haven't done that properly. Do you think this is going to work? Hopefully. What, what do I do now? Run. Press run. Did that work? What's gone wrong? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going, it's going. Yes! I just wrote eight lines of code. Wow. So how long have you been doing this? Since I started secondary school, about since year seven. And what have you learned so far? Well, I've gotten familiar with Scratch and these kind of things. And it's really easy once you get the hang of it. What made you want to do it, or was it something that everybody was doing? Both. Um, I realised that everything that happens is, it begins with code. So I thought, I wanted to learn how that works. Obviously, you've learned some of the building blocks of code, but how far do you want to go with learning to code? As far as it gets. I don't know most of the things. And have you got ambitions to, to get a job doing this in the long run? Well, I've been thinking about what jobs I can get with code, but nothing on my mind yet. You don't see yourself working for Facebook or becoming a software engineer for Google? <laughs> that would be good, yeah. That's Queensley from Eastleigh Community School in London helping me out. She's uh, one of thousands of young students taking part in this year's BBC News School Report Project. More about that at bbc.co.uk slash school report. Now, special guest Alex Asali, you're an ambassador for the Hour of Code. This has become a sort of global movement, isn't it? A country's beginning to think they'll get ahead if uh, every child can code. It's actually pretty incredible. I'm amazed at how many kids have taken this up in the US and the UK. It's incredible. I think it's already 6 million kids in the UK, something like that. I mean, it's a huge percentage of, of the population has, has caught on to this. And I think it's, it's symbolic, I think, of a realization that everything is going digital. And rather than learning, for instance, another natural language like uh, Italian, uh, you might be better off learning how to code and talk to computers. Wouldn't it be more useful for, for students to learn, um, maybe not Italian, maybe Chinese, uh, uh, rather than uh, Python or, or, or languages like that? Mo most people, frankly, are not going to end up as computer programmers, are they? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I'm, I, I'm partial to natural languages, and I think there's a huge benefit to knowing 
you know, how to speak Chinese or speaking French or Spanish. But I do think that um, it's scary when you, if, you're, if you're young and you're looking out at the, the next 40, 50 years of your career and wondering whether not learning code is somehow going to give you a handicap. So this is actually giving young people, uh, and the rest of us, some of us older people, uh, a chance to, to get, a, get a vision of uh, how coding works. Uh, now, we've got to move on. A roundup of the week's other big tech stories with Zoe Kleiman and Dave Lee. Dave, you just can't keep the controversial car service Uber out of the news. What's happening now? No, they can't keep themselves out of the news, can they? Um, so the latest from Uber is this week. They've suspended their services uh, in Delhi. Now, this is after uh, one of their drivers was alleged to have raped a, a woman in Delhi, um, and they said they were uh, uber have said they were sorry and deeply saddened by this and they've suspended what they're doing there while they review how they audit drivers and make sure that the people driving for them are lots are of safe. questions around the world about whether the, how how tightly they control the sort of people who drive their cars there is and it's getting to the point now where it's easier to remember the places where uber is allowed to operate than it is to find the ones where they can't um you know the moment we see in portland in toronto in toronto los angeles rio holland uh, and we're expecting a decision in paris which news from the wall street journal's reporter saying that perhaps uh, paris has decided not to ban uber uh, there but we haven't had that confirmed at the bbc so yet another court case where uber are involved oh generally they have got enough money to ignore a lot of rulings they just seem to carry on uh, and they do seem to win in many places um you've also got a story that the best known name in online piracy may finally have uh, have given up the ghost is that right yes yeah, so uh, late in the evening on tuesday in sweden there was a raid uh, in the part of the country called naka which is a mountainous region and in these mountains are these servers where the pirate bay um, was said to be hiding or and remind us about it. the pirate bay the pirate bay is one of the most notorious piracy websites it's a kind of list of torrents where people can find this kind of material um lots of countries have tried to ban it tried to block it do various things but no one's been able to take it offline really for any length of time it's been offline since since that raid so for much of this week um some say it may resurface um others including one of the co-founders of the pirate bay has said probably time to give it up Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Zoe, we found out this week that the photo-sharing app Instagram has now got more users than Twitter. That's right. Instagram now claims to have 300 million users, which overtakes Twitter's uh, 284 million. That's despite Twitter having had a three-year head start because it was founded in 2007 and Instagram came along in 2010. But Twitter doesn't seem too bothered, though, Rory. To be honest, its co-founder Ed Williams says, and I'm paraphrasing this to put it politely, that he doesn't care, and he described the two companies as apples and oranges. Uh, Facebook, incidentally, is way ahead with 1.35 billion monthly active users, but it did buy Instagram in 2012. So we asked Kevin Seistrom, who is Instagram's chief exec, whether he now thinks he and his co-founder should have held out for a bit more cash when Facebook bought the company for $1 billion. I think of the initial amount as an investment. Not a lot of people realize this, but I mean, we had 13 people when Facebook bought us, 13 people working in a small room. So we were a very small team with big ambitions. But one of the reasons we are where we are is because Mike, my co-founder and I, remain very committed to growing this uh, company and this community into the future. I think a lot of companies sell and then their founders disappear and um, and it doesn't go anywhere. But I think part of the amazing story of this acquisition is that we've stuck with it and built it into something that's special. Uh, that's Kevin Seistrom of Instagram. Uh, Alex Asaley of uh, another uh, go-go startup, Jawbone. You founded that and uh, you've moved on. But um, who do you see winning these social media wars? Uh, is it really a war between Instagram and Twitter? Not really, no. They're both amazing companies. 
And I think Ev Williams uh, said it correctly. They're apples and oranges. Twitter is a fire hose of information for the world today, real-time information, news, chatter. And Instagram is about photos. Um, I think one of the reasons why Instagram is probably pulled ahead in terms of just sheer active numbers is because everyone likes to take pictures. And it's not clear that everyone has something valuable to say uh, that's newsworthy. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You should read my Twitter stream. Anyway. <laughs> you're an you're, exception. Uh, you're listening to Tech Tent on the BBC World Service. I'm Rory Kathleen-Jones. Coming up shortly, what makes a great innovator? But first, look around. Blue LEDs, light-emitting diodes, are everywhere. We take them for granted and they've transformed lighting. But they've only been around for the last 20 years. This week, three scientists originally from Japan collected the Nobel Prize for Physics for inventing the technology, which uses a material called gallium nitride. So what next for blue LEDs? Alison Van Diggelen went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she met Dr. Stephen Denbars, who is a research partner with one of those Nobel winners, Professor Shuji Nakamura. The holy grail of LEDs at the time was to make a blue LED. We had red and green. We didn't have blue. If you have a paintbrush and you only have red and green, you can't make a painting <laughs> correctly replicate the visible spectrum. People have been looking for 40 years for the right blue-emitting semiconductor, and 99% of the people at the time were chasing a material called zinc selenide, which uh, is not commercialized today because gallium nitride won in its race to get a bright and efficient and reliable blue light. So tell me about the laser headlights for the LED laser headlights. Yeah, so the, the LED laser headlight actually uses the chip as a laser to create a very small spot of light. You can see 700 meters in front of the car. Normal headlights, 150 meters. So you may think that it, this is going to scare the other driver be bright, but it's not any brighter to the other driver. It's just that it can be more tightly focused and what's called collimated or projected onto the road. And it's actually been released by BMW and Audi in Germany, several thousand dollars per headlight. But it's a safety feature because in the Autobahn, you drive about 240 kilometers an hour. So you want to see 700 meters. You guys are researching away every day around the mm -hmm. clock. Can you give us a taste of the future? What is the next step in LED technology? Well, the next step is actually not just using this material for LED, um, which we are. We're using it for LED for communication or even better efficiencies or lowering the cost, that is, to make the LED. If you make it even brighter, that helps us reduce the cost because then you need fewer of them. We just call that next generation gallium nitride on gallium nitride LED. We basically take all the defects out of it to do that. We found two other uses for this material, which are very interesting. One is the laser diode. That is, if you keep turning up the power on a, an LED, it'll actually turn into a laser. That is, a single beam of light will shoot out. Laser TV is now being implemented using this. Laser TV is actually to, you remember old cinema used to have these projectors with a light bulb in them, and they project through film. Laser TV is actually taking the laser, and um, you actually hit a small phosphor disc or ball, and that is your light source, and that lets you increase the brightness or reduce the size of the projector. So you can imagine a projector that's as bright as a, your TV the size of a matchbook if we perfect this. I forgot about the third aspect of this material, gallium nitride, when you asked me the future, and that is to use it in electric cars. It turns out you can use this as the uh, thing that switches from the battery power to the electric drive. It's called a power converter. So uh, Professor Nakamura and myself and Professor Speck and Mish are also looking at it, 
for power electronics. I saw projections. It would take the Toyota Prius, which gets about 55 miles a gallon. Now the hybrid technology would make it over 120 miles per gallon. That's Dr. Stephen Denbars on the exciting future of uh, blue LEDs. Now, the World Wide Web is becoming less free, more unequal, more prone to censorship and surveillance, and governments and corporations are to blame. That's the conclusion of this year's Web Index, an annual survey of the social impact of the web across 86 countries. The web's creator, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, set up the body which carries out this research, and he's concerned about the findings. When I met him, I asked him what worried him most about this year's report. The biggest thing is that companies and governments controlling, blocking, spying on the internet has risen this year. I think people do need to be woken up because to be able to control and abuse the internet gives a company or gives a government so much power that there will always be huge temptation to do that unless we now, this year, we decide we are going to make net neutrality a rule. We are going to write it on the wall so that all future generations will live by it and that is how our country and our world will flourish. You've been a huge proponent of net neutrality. There are quite powerful forces, particularly in the United States, who say uh, that if they are going to invest in the infrastructure that you say we need to take the internet forward, uh, they're going to need to uh, earn more money from it, frankly. Basically, that's nonsense. They've already invested in uh, generation after generation of technology uh, funded by the money we've paid to be connected. We continue to pay to be connected. If you look at the balance sheets of the telecommunications companies, see how look at the profits they've been making recently. Last week, Professor Stephen Hawking told us that um, he feared for humanity's future as artificial intelligence became more and more developed. You as a computer scientist, what, what do you think about that issue? Any scientist has to think ethically about the implications of the things they do. So I think at the moment, yes, artificial intelligence is becoming very strong. We have to think about what happens when it becomes comparable with uh, human intelligence, when corporations become run more and more by artificial intelligence, as, for example... Trading companies at the moment are run by, comp- by computers. So they're uh, really, if you want to trade high frequency on the stock market, hum- human beings need not apply for the job. Uh, they can't do it. And uh, lots of, of course, interesting philosophical questions about if we, when we start to build uh, single intelligences, which have, have a very vast amount of knowledge, should we constrain them? Should we enable them? Should we hand over power to them? I think these are all good questions to ask. And finally, how far along the path are we? Is this actually a very distant concern? I think uh, there may be unexpected kinks. I don't think that just extrapolating it from from the lines that people have been drawing to, uh, is easy. So either when actually we get something which has got that ability to to think for itself and to uh, to operate its own agenda to and defend its own turf, uh, it's not clear. But I. We've been surprised how quickly some things, previous things, have fallen, like the ability to play chess, the ability to drive a car. Those were things which before we used to tell our children, oh, no, those are things that computers can't do, people can. They're not anymore. That's Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the web's creator. Alex Asaley, uh, our special guest. Are you as exercised about net neutrality as Sir Tim is? I think I probably am. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that we don't, understand very well people don't understand very well and i think it's an assumed it's an it's an implied right of the web and i think taking it away needs a broader debate and i think that's what tim's pushing for
Okay. Now, the most successful and probably best-selling book about technology of recent years was Walter Isaacson's Warts and All biography of Apple's co-founder, Steve Jobs. Uh, Mr. Isaacson has now brought out a new book, The Innovators, which tells the stories of the creators of our digital era, from the 19th century computer programming pioneer Ada Lovelace to Sergey Brin and Larry Page of Google. But unlike his book on the mercurial genius Steve Jobs, his latest work is all about teamwork. So I asked him whether we overestimated the importance of genius. Vision without execution is hallucination. So in the book, there are a lot of geniuses, Alan Turing, of course, and Ada Lovelace, and people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. But the one thing I learned from Steve Jobs and anybody else I've written about is that you need to create a team because creativity is a team sport. And we biographers sometimes distort history a little bit. We make it seem like that there's some guy or gal in a garage or a garret having a light bulb moment and innovation happens. What was the most impressive team that you found in your research for this book? (laughs) I start with Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage in the 1830s because she's a great visionary who can connect the poetry of her father, you know, Lord Byron, uh, to mathematics because she was a mathematician and see how that applied to the calculating machine that Charles Babbage was building and how punch cards would allow it to do anything, not just numbers but notes and music and words and art. But, you know, you go through all of the teams, whether it's Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, where, you know, Wozniak is just this wonderful engineer, but Steve Jobs is a visionary. Likewise, Bill Gates being a hard-driven businessman pairing up with Paul Allen. And uh, But I think the most impressive teams are the ones you never hear about, like the team of graduate students who created the original ARPANET that becomes the backbone of the Internet. And do teams have a long life? Um, when you think of some of the, the, the great innovative technology companies, it seems, doesn't it, they, they have a burst of innovation at the beginning and then it all becomes a bit routine or maybe the teams become too big and they lose that spark. That's the most important thing you can do when you're creating a good company is to keep the spark. I once asked Steve Jobs right before he died what product he was most proud of, and I thought he might say the original Macintosh or the iPhone or the iPad. Instead, he said, well, you know, making a product like those are hard, but what's really hard is making a team that lasts, that will hold together for generations and continue to make good products. So the thing he was most proud of, he said, was Apple, the company. Likewise, uh, Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce and Andy Grove created Intel, and that's been an innovative company all the way through. Isn't it probable, though, that the next big innovation is going to come not from one of those existing teams, but from a new team? And is Is that inevitably going to be in Silicon Valley or are there other places around the world that are going to do that? I would be surprised if it's in Silicon Valley. I think that there are other places around the world. Silicon Valley is filled with engineers, but the next wave of the digital revolution, I think, comes from people where there's the real creativity, people who understand the humanities and the arts and journalism and media and various other things because it will be connecting uh, creative uh, media to uh, digital technology in ways we haven't done before. And so I think even in Silicon Valley, you see a migration up north to San Francisco where the more creative types like to live. Likewise, whether it be in London or in New York or Boston, uh, various places, uh, where you find uh, people who 
uh, are at the intersection of the humanities on one side and technology on the other. It's at that intersection that I think the next innovations will occur. And they'll be in different fields like life sciences or new forms of journalism and media. That's Walter Isaacson with an encouraging message for those of us involved in journalism and uh, the media. Um, Alex Asaley, uh, you've been involved in one very innovative new area, uh, wearable technology at uh, Jawbone. Has that revolution really happened yet? Uh, We keep hearing that it's the next big thing. It seems a bit niche at the moment. It depends who you ask. I mean, uh, we were we were making wearables back in uh, 2006, Bluetooth headset that disrupted that space. For people who cared about Bluetooth headsets, uh, they were quite pervasive. I think what's happened now, though, is that wearables have actually entered a phase where a lot of different people, young, old, middle-aged, suddenly see a need for them or a desire to have them. And I think that's the big shift that's happened. And I think that's come, in our case, through wellness, through health. And briefly, is, is Apple Watch really going to be the thing that kickstarts that revolution? Uh, wait and see. <laughs> Still a bit sceptical. Yeah. Um, I just want to get one thing in before we finish. We were talking about Uber earlier. We get reams of press releases with companies trying to jump on the bandwagon, claiming they're the Uber of this, the Uber of that, the Uber of something else. Uh, it's now given rise to a poem, that idea, written by Jason Gilbert, the editor of Yahoo Tech. Uh, And we asked him to read that poem for us. There's Uber for planes and Uber for jets, an Uber for pills and Uber for pets. There's Uber for dogs and Uber for cats. Need a hot stone massage? There's an Uber for that. An Uber for nails and an Uber for news. And while your nails dry, there's an Uber for booze. (laughs) That's just the start. You can read the rest of it in uh, Quartz magazine, uh, QZ.com. It does tell us the truth, doesn't it, Alex Asaley? Everybody wants to imitate the latest thing and very few of them can actually match it. Yeah, innovation's hard. And I think uh, focusing on need finding is probably a good place to start. Whether you end up being an Uber of something uh, remains to be seen, I guess. Uh, Is is, is Jawbone really going to be the Uber of wearable technology? (laughs) Well, I hope Uber becomes a jawbone of something. <laughs> Very well said. Well, we are beginning to reach the end of our time once again. Uh, so thank you to our special guest, uh, Alex Asaley. Thank to you. Zoe, Zoe Kleinman. Zoe, goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, and Dave Lee from our own online technology desk. You can read all their stories at bbc.com forward slash technology. And join us again at the same time next week.